0: Just to warn listeners, this episode contains strong language. You're listening to Love Stories with me, Dolly Alderton. A series in which I talk to guests about their most defining relationships. The passion, heartbreak, longing, familiarity and fondness that has formed who they are. My guest this week is the comedian, writer and actor, Sarah Pascoe. Her honesty, observational skills, and relentless curiosity about the world has set her apart from other comedians, with work that not only leaves panel show audiences, fringe audiences, and a packed Apollo audience in stitches, but understanding themselves and their fellow humans a bit better. Her insights on men, women, and romantic and sexual behavior are particularly brilliant. I do need to start being more selective.
1: Like, currently, all of my lovers have exactly the same thing in common. They're all
0: slightly more attractive than a night bus. <laughs> in 2016, she published her first book, Animal, the autobiography of a female body. The book, which is part memoir, part research-based investigation, takes a tour around all complexities and crevices of both the female human body and the female experience in her typically subversive, creative, hilarious and admirably honest style. So after that kind of awakening with yeah. your sexuality and realising that women can be just as have as much of a sexual appetite as men yeah. and can be, just be as transgressive and perverted and creative yes. yeah. with their sexual fantasy, what what did that moment feel like? Well, I didn't masturbate
1: successfully until I was thirty-two, so this is all kind of in, in together. So I'd met this person that I really, really fancied. So that was very exciting for my body. And then, at the same time as that, because I was really missing him, I was getting very horny, mm. like, about seeing him. And because he's a comic, he was away sometimes, and or oh, I had to, I had to go away. And then I had this frustration that I had been kind of building in my previous relationship, where I didn't have a way of having sex without him. Yeah. And I should have masturbated as a teenager, like everyone else. But the problem was, and this is where I, don't, I think it's so difficult for anyone who has children my mum had talked to me about the importance of masturbating and ruined it like there had been this thing where my mum was quite open about sex and my mum had said and of course you'll do this and you'll explore your body and then I think whatever happened to me whenever I kind of tried would be like well mum
0: would be proud <laughs> it's just like the, the least sexy thing in the world but it's so hard because you're so fucked as a parent because yeah, what you're told you is yeah. you have to not attach shame to this yes, of course I've always thought with parenting a wonderful thing would be mm. to say you know it's good to explore I think but then I suppose you do conflate it with this odd approval parental I think, approval I think
1: that's why so my whole thing is that there is so much that young people should questions they should be able to ask and education they should have about sex and love and all of the things around it but not all of that information should come from the parents that's That's
0: interesting. So that's
1: why I think where the state becomes involved is that what you do is you have these responsible areas so a parent can trust that certain things are being taken care of. Because also, the other thing I think is there are so many parents who are so busy. There are single parents with two jobs mm. and and no time to go on forums or mm. and, and not necessarily always... And this isn't to say that those parents are in any way irresponsible. I'm sure they love their children so much, but they might not know... Most parents don't know what their children are watching on the internet or yeah. on TV and all those kind of things. So if we just agree in a very Northern European way <laughs> that, that there are things that everyone should know and we should all trust... Every year. Actually, the Tories have been really good on sex education. It's the first time it's changed for 14 years. Mm, really? Yeah, and it's the first time it's included pornography. And children are now co- taught consent in an age-appropriate way every right. year from primary school, which is massive.
0: Yeah. Which is really, really huge. What was your memory of being taught of sexual education
1: at school? So I, I don't think I had terrible sex education. We watched loads of videos, like as in videos of like a cartoon, so an animated rather than cartoon. A penis into like a cross section of a woman, and then there was videos of people throwing frisbee and playing volleyball on the beach, like naked people with lots of pubic hair. And then <laughs> yes, mine, yes, mine yeah. were
0: were doing chores around the house, oh, were they, with a lot of pubic hair yes, on display. Yeah, yeah, lots of
1: pubic hair. like All of the family nude. Yes, right down yes, the ages, that's yes. what. Yeah. And um, but with masturbation, that's the big change of the 32 was that I then suddenly was in control of something. And while I'm still not as completely open and issue free as I would like to be Mm. at least now I can masturbate and I'm open about masturbating like I don't have any embarrassment if I was horny and my boyfriend was in my house and he's got to do work I would say I'm going to shut the door because I'm going to go and masturbate Mm. in the other room Mm. and I actually feel like so oddly proud of myself for like yeah because it's a physical release that makes you feel better Yeah,
0: and sometimes I need it and I think as well something that I found amazingly liberating is I remember when I was at an all girls school there would be like rumours of Mm. girls that would masturbate masturbate and it would mean immediately we they we thought that they were a kind of weirdo yes perv well actually that's the, the shame amongst girls because i didn't i went to a mixed sex school but i
1: still remember the policing of female behavior by was the
0: girls yes yeah exactly and then when i got to university there was i had one friend who I met, who was in a kind of... in the centre of this kind of friendship group that I made. And she was a great... She was one of those girls who'd had very loving, monogamous relationships from a very young age. So I think she was sexually active, but in a very... Healthy and safe environment okay. from a very young age, yeah. and she was a big advocate for everyone having a vibrator. Yeah. and I remember feeling that that would that would be perverted, that would be yeah. weird. Um, and she went to Anne Summers, and every single one of us that didn't have a vibrator, she bought and she left in little bags on oh. our doorknobs. What a in,
1: generous! Yeah, in
0: halls yeah. in our halls of residence, and I remember some women even then yes. in our late teens and early twenties yeah. found that behaviour to be really unsavory yeah but, but i felt so relaxed yes. and open and i felt so the absence of liberated. shame is euphoric yeah like it's euphoric you, you, yeah, yeah. Because you go,
1: all these things are layering down and down and down and it's not even other people sometimes it's you telling yourself you're wrong and then when that just if you can find an area where you can just stop that you go oh my god oh yeah yeah how nice how lovely and then that thing of that actual realization is i'm not hurting anyone yeah and it's a like the self-love thing oh yeah that's like the most purest sense of it.
0: Yeah, and I, so I was listening to The Guilty Feminist and mm. something that you said is an episode where you just become single and you said that you had tried to get into a habit with masturbation that you would be that you would like seduce yourself.
1: Oh, yeah. I, th- I think I did go through a phase of that, but also it's because quite often I'm in hotel rooms, and I don't know if you find this, I find hotel rooms are so horny. Like, there's just something <laughs> about they them. Are. You get this <laughs> bed is fucking massive and there's this mirror in front of the bath. So I think the self-seduction thing, when I said that thing on The Guilty Feminist... Was like a, I was trying like no don't just finger yourself on the bed <laughs> run a bath you know you know what's coming you know you know you know you are guaranteed an orgasm take your time <laughs> <laughs> also I think I find meditation very difficult but in terms of like mindfulness. When you masturbate and your brain keeps going, you were supposed to do that thing today and you haven't done that email, you do hear what's in your head. Mm -hmm. You do hear, oh, I fancy my boyfriend's best friend. (laughs) Or "I'm, I'm having lesbian thoughts. Like all of those kind of things. I think it's also that is like, I know people masturbate to pornography mostly nowadays. The other kind, which I think is called mindful masturbation, when people are coming out of sexual addiction... They do a thing where they masturbate with their eyes open so they can't even fantasise about other images. You're really present in what you're doing. But I think actually for people in general, even if they do usually use pornography, if you have more time to kind of find out what
0: is coming up in your own brain and what's there... And also, I think the thing with masturbation as well with women is I think that often the fear is one's own sexual fantasies and thoughts, mm. and whether what that says about you or your morality. Yes. And I think something that's been really important for me with sexuality growing up, not only with myself but with other people mm. as well, is realizing that you are not your sexual desires, yeah. or thoughts, but, but, or fantasies. Well, that's actually
1: where I think the internet pornography thing is fascinating because there are people and the majority of them are male but who masturbate to things that they don't sexually identify with and they become very isolated and I think it leads to a huge amount of shame and depression and isolation from people because it's not just that you masturbate a lot as you masturbate. the way that dopamine works with pornography is that you need novelty So basically, there's a circuit in the brain that kept us as a species always looking for fresh new partners and being excited by them. And now when you have lots of screens open, that cycle in some people can go haywire. Mm. And what it means is when you're always looking for something a bit more novel, that means that for some people, that means that the ages of the people that you're watching goes to a limit. Yeah. You do not identify as a paedophile. You're masturbating to images that are paedophilic. Mm. And I think that, when you have to deal with that in your everyday life, no matter what you do, I mean, that's something that now we have to deal with as a society because I don't think that's a small amount of people. Mm. And similarly, when people identify straight and think they're very, very straight, but masturbate to homosexual porn. Or, mm. And also, and actually, again, it's something that we can learn our way out of. It's like that's the whole thing about fantasy. That's for the majority of people... Apart from, like, boring people, like, oh, I just want a three-way. For the majority... <laughs> for Uncreative the, yeah, people. God, get, get one that's not a cliché, please. Um, but, yeah, for people who, like, actually just understanding that it's a place your brain goes to to excite you is so yeah. different
0: from, that's my goal. <laughs> that's my plan. That's where yeah. I'm going. understanding that that your sexuality is such an unreasoned and ancient and primal yes, yeah, thing. It's yeah. not there to be And that's the same thing, unpicked. actually, with what you
1: get aroused by. I think, again, as men, I, I don't, I'm not saying that women don't have this, but what women, I don't think we have as much. And actually, I don't think gay men have it. Or maybe they do. Here's where the entitlement thing comes in, because I don't think gay men have the same sense of entitlement about other men's bodies that some straight men have about women's bodies. Yes. So um, I had an ex-boyfriend, and he he got really angry about, there was, this, there was a couple of summers where girls were wearing very, very, very short denim shorts.
0: Yes, I remember yes, it, yes. yes.
1: And he was really angry with parents because he felt that they should stop these girls walking out in these shorts because he says they don't know the effect that has on a man's body. And then I realised, I, honestly, I kept I mean, unpacking it for years. It made him feel like a bad person. I felt at the time, my fury with him is you don't get to tell teenage yeah. girls what yeah. they wear. I, I don't care. I don't care what you feel. It's their world. Like we should do, like, be
0: taking your impulses them. into. Yes, yeah.
1: but now what I've realised is, is the impulse he felt made him think he was a bad person because the buttocks of a fourteen or a fifteen-year-old aroused him, mm. and that's where the shame comes in. Because mm. you're like, actually, no, you should know that it's a physiological reaction to someone who's about to be the most fertile she will ever be. Yeah, <laughs> Just yeah. take a like a weight off and look away. like Totally. yes yeah. totally. I think that's what's difficult when we tell them that we've got such an anti pedophilic thing. Men are being told the worst thing you can be, and women. The Worst thing you can be is this thing, but there isn't the talk about the fact that it, the reason it exists at all,
0: yeah, as a, as as a sexual proclivity or an aberration, and, and all of that kind of stuff. And the problem yeah. is, is that it then becomes, as with all taboo, it then can become something that you totally fixate on. Yes, off, and you pour yeah. all your anxiety yes. of this is the evidence that I am deep down an yes. incredibly bad yeah. person. or I'm, I'm controlling a monster inside. Yes, me,
1: yes. Rather than just going, oh, I see. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, That's actually, so it's, the, it's the adult signs in that young woman that were attractive to me. Mm. And then I then have to battle within my head all the time where I'll be safe around my kids' friends. Yeah, yeah, yeah. God, that's fascinating.
0: Sarah, I would like you to tell me yeah. your first love story, which is a story of first love. A story of first love. So I loved a boy at sixth form college.
1: He was tall and he was a bit, like, kind of crazy. He'd been in the army and he was at college. and he So he was a year or two older than me, but in my year... And we were all doing a production of Midsummer Night's Dream, and you had very spiky hair, massive. I've always had this thing for like googly blue eyes. Like there's something about like eyes that look like they're about to pop out of a boy's head.
0: Just... Which is interesting because I yeah. watched an interview with you recently where you said that you get very aroused by men crying because it yes. makes their eyes more googly. <laughs> yeah, basically. That's it. That,
1: oh, there's something about massive blue eyes with a sheen of tears <laughs> across them. <laughs> well, I've just been an awful bitch. I love it. <laughs> <laughs> um, I am, um, yeah. He had, yeah, and he I actually hated him. And he, but I, I've realized now one of my patterns is that's when I'm about to fall massively in love with someone. My first thing is, I hate hate him. Oh no but Sarah, I'm so aware but that's
0: the plot of all the worst rom
1: coms. Yeah so I'm worst. I'm, I'm the worst rom coms. <laughs> that's it. Um I hated him and he came to watch us do karaoke and it's the first time he'd ever said anything to me like more than a sentence and he said, You're much better than I thought you were gonna be which is true. I'm an amazing singer. And um and then it is it is a romantic story, but it's not because now if I was to hear my if, I, if this was to happen to me now, I'd have such a different reaction. But essentially, I'd been bullied at school. Just bullied like how everyone's was bullied, like not popular. And also, the older I get, the more I realise that we only see our point of view. I think I bullied as much as I was bullied, if right. that makes sense. Yeah, but I yeah. identified as a very bullied person at 17. Yeah. I wasn't popular. And a girl at college who had been the year above me at school. And it was all my fault. She had a best friend. She had been sleeping with someone who wasn't her boyfriend. I had told everyone. <laughs> and, so, <laughs> and, and so this is another classic Pasco. And um, don't ever tell me any secrets. <laughs> and um, her name was Leanne. And, um, she, and she had cheated s- on her boyfriend. And I knew about it. His name is Danny. And I told his friend Keith. And um, then I told everyone. Because <laughs> I wasn't their friend. I wasn't their friend and and who cares And um,
0: but also particularly at school it really is a currency I remember it and yeah. if you see an opportunity if you feel yeah. victimised and marginalised which yes. is basically most teenagers yeah. if you see an opportunity to feast on someone yes. else's yeah, misgivings that's it. or just so you can yes. have you know yeah. or
1: looking more inside things like looking yeah. like you do know about these things so anyway I, and then when, we went, when I was at sixth form college I was in the canteen bit and this girl the friend of Leanne who had given me her name's Lucy and she'd give me a lot of shit at school and then left now I was back with her again and she was pushing me and um, I think she might have poured soup on me and then um, this guy came up and punched her. Now, <gasps> obviously, at, for, growing up in Essex, boys were absolutely not allowed to hit girls. Like, it was there's something that their dads would say, you're taught it, never hit a woman, never yeah. hit a woman, yeah. never hit a woman. And um, and they would all, and it and um, and he just did, and then it was just like she was being a cunt. Fuck. I know. And so then we went out and like sat in his car and talked all day. And I still just... were you impressed by that
0: though? Or did you just love that someone seemed to care that much?
1: I think I was massively swept away with the story of it. Yeah. I think yeah. as it happened, it's like what you talk about in your book, right? The problem is, you make yourself a story. You make yourself a character in your life because you are literally orchestrating Act Three. Yeah. <laughs> act yeah. Three, fall in love. Yeah. And that was it. Is it? Um, I I knew he was a character, I knew... My mum said at the time, which I actually think was very astute of her, she said, um, you're pretending to be more fucked up than you are to be attractive to each other he was mental and I was mental. Yeah, and Bonnie just, and Clyde yeah, kind of you've had, a, you've had a shit life and I've, I'm so fucking shit, oh God. Like it was so, <laughs> and yeah, so teenage. And also the beauty of finding one other person is because you're telling yourself you're utterly isolated. Yeah. So it's like it's just, it was just me and now it's you.
0: And but he, you described that when I read about your relationship with him, it reminded me so much of not even just my teens, in my 20, mm-hmm. early 20s, what I thought love should be, where it's like yeah. this cocoon against the world. Yes. where well, you said you would only sleep in a bed if he was sleeping yeah. in it. You said you would only let him go to the, go to the loo on his own when he insisted. Yeah. And it was this kind of... I would of... just follow
1: him. Or I'd also yeah. like, oh, I, I hit a knock on the door and that's it. So I was obsessed with him. And, but the, th- the problem was... Not, actually, was none of it was a problematic at the time, or I didn't find it problematic. The problem when we broke up, I honestly thought we were going to be together forever. So that was a shifting of life expectation. The pain you feel rejection right in the brain is the same center as physical pain and mm. it's why some people self-harm mm. because it's the only way that you can stop so basically you're sending signals to the same part of your brain but it's the only thing that stops the, the part of you that's um feeling emotional pain and mm. um, so that second part of it i had nothing solid all of it because I, I didn't have a plan b it, it's like you think the sky is blue, like that kind of su- assuredness, yeah. and then it's not. Yeah. And so what I didn't let go of for years is that he wasn't the ending,
0: mm. that I
1: honestly thought we were going to come back round again. So, and so you were so together
0: 10 months, weren't you? Which yes. is in 16-year-old's head a very long it time. It is, then,
1: and there is a long time, but it, that means that even at university, so what's that, I oh, university I was 20, so four years later, I was still living my life to see him again, like... Everything was about who I would be when he came back, right. what I would have done, what I, and also I think I was dre- still at that point dreaming almost nightly the conversation, how cool I would be at the beginning. Not cool as in emotionless, but how I would set out my stall. Like this is my site. This is what you listen to. This is what I've done. This is what I've learned from it.
0: And it's that narrative thing yeah, again. Yeah, exactly. Isn't it? That's
1: the thing. And and thinking that everything came in cycles. And then the thing with John. So then when I met John, who's the most recent relationship, because it was exactly sixteen years later at thirty-two. Story-wise, it fit for me perfectly. Every sixteen years, you get a love. <laughs> like it was literally like that. Like she thought the first one was the one. The second <laughs> one was the one, starring Sarah Basco all over again. And yeah.
0: And you'd see the film in a sort of one-day way. Yeah. You'd see it. You'd come back to every 16. It'd be three acts, wouldn't it? And and you can
1: see the themes. You can see that that was set up then and that's what she's learned. Yeah. Yeah. All of that. Because he
0: was unfaithful. That was the reason he broke one. up. Yeah.
1: Yeah, but, and also, again, in a very teenage way. Like I don't think, I don't think 16 or 18-year-olds can be accused of like infidelity in that way that if you've been married to someone and promised you're going to be faithful to them forever. He had a very common thing where he had a female best friend who they fell in love with each other. But at the time, because we were all teenagers, he'd promised nothing was happening. And then I saw them kissing when I was doing karaoke. One of my Edinburgh shows, maybe my third Edinburgh show, I did stand-up about it while singing Never Ever by All Saints, <laughs> which was the song when I saw them and then ran from the bar.
0: Something that someone said recently to me was it's really important that your first boyfriend is kind and that he treats Mm. you well because that's a template that you take as normal and that you then seek out for sort of the rest of your life, I think. And I know that sounds dramatic but Mm. I, I... do you kind of adhere to that theory because I had a boyfriend when I was about 17 he was so horrible to me and again a lot of that I had enabled mm. because I liked this kind of push and pull and I liked the idea that it was meant to be these big highs and lows So do you associate insecurity or feeling not good enough with love? I think that I I think I associated a default with men, which mm. is I would have to fight extremely hard to keep their attention and to be worthy of their affection.
1: Okay. And, and is that then, do you find that with life as, well? do you think you pick career things that are really hard? Are you an overachiever who needs a challenge everywhere?
0: Maybe, because it, it might
1: just be that if your if your default is, and that's when I'm going to get there, and yeah, that's when I'm going to get yeah. that thing, that's when I, then then that's what you're looking for there as well. Yeah, because the the climb, the journey, is the bit that gets
0: you off. Yeah, exactly. And also, it means that that state of of never being in the present and constantly anxious about the future just yes. becomes the activity. Yeah that just becomes what it is. Yeah. Um so did you find what did that kind of So I template... think so I think the
1: danger of templates I don't know not the danger of templates the danger of telling there are things that can sometimes feel true to us but the idea that you can't change outside of them is dangerous. Yeah. So I don't think people's idea of love is set necessarily from their parents or a first relationship. There are lots of things that try to say, this is a formula, that's why you do these things. Mm. When you realise there's a formula, you can change it.
0: Mm, There mm. are
1: certain things that all of us associate with a comfortable feeling. And I said, for some people, that is actually insecurity. I realised when I first start really liking someone, and they like me too, like they want to hang out with me. I worry constantly I've got something on my face. (laughs) And I remember when I noticed that going, that's not love. That's not love, that is going, I'm disgusting, I'm ugly, I yeah. need to hide they're, yeah. they're going to be they're not going to tell me, I need to be so sensitive to pick up when they're disgusted, disgusted with me, and then you go all of that's setting off that's self- hatred. Mm that's not excitement about seeing someone mm, and then mm. going, oh, separating that going, there's stuff that we can deal with about ourselves that's nothing to do, it's not even like other people can't solve it for us, it's nothing to do with them. Like a man or a woman sitting opposite you going, you've got nothing
0: on your face, doesn't mm. make that feeling go away. Mm. You've got to do some stuff with yourself. Yeah, totally. I feel and like, actually yeah. that template thing that you say, I think people who are very anti-talking therapy, mm. which I did and yes. changed my yes. life, yeah. but I understand where this concern comes from them, is that, if you decide what that context is that Mm. template for which you have entered the world and you are an adult if you Mm. repeat that story week in week out then something will happen in your brain by which that you are defined by it and I think
1: that's the thing it's never too late in your life or too early to be slightly nicer to yourself and I think again there's so many people we should care about in the world and there's so many terrible things happening that it looks like you're being narcissistic or selfish but you can't help other people unless you're happy. You actually create so much more problems. Everyone at any point, it doesn't matter what kind of relationship you're in or whether you're in one, you can just take a little more time to work out, yeah, I don't want to go to your birthday party. Mm. (laughs) I want to leave this thing a bit early. There's these little things that change and they have such a huge knock-on effect where you go, oh, I usually would have stayed... Thinking, I don't want to be here. Mm. What well, I want, no one hates you if you go home. Mm. And then you're at home in your pajamas at ten o'clock, going, "Well, this is a life lesson, isn't it? Is a life lesson." Um, so I think there's so many things, and again with the relationships, little cliches that we then tell ourselves. And it's because it's so hard to describe the feelings of love that we have to kind of cliche a little bit to describe to other people. I'm a serial monogamist. I'm this person. I'm that. I'm. I've got a friend. Yeah, I've I've so got a friend true. Even in your book, you go, oh, "I'm a permanently single person." Yeah,
0: and it's or you hear it when people say, "I'm a love addict" or "I'm." A Uh, Yes,
1: and we find it because it's it's, it's far too complicated to actually describe the truth. So my friend Brett Goldstein, his sister and her best friend are both in really happy marriages. Not marriages who haven't had problems, as in both of them have experienced traumatic life events and things like that. And both of them have said, it's just easy. And I really... I had to, I kept coming back to it and thinking, they don't even know what it is. Mm -hmm. They're they're those people who have just like, Settled, yeah, yeah, and then a Kate the idea of like it's it should so just dangerous. be easy because the part of me that wants the story and the drama doesn't want it to be easy, mm. they want it to be a mountain you, you get to, you mm. get up, they, mm. they want it to be and then I could finally die <laughs> like, like all of that. It's so, like, oh, the idea that what you'd be looking for is someone, the idea that if you want to write and produce work and that's really the love of your life that what you want is a relationship that doesn't distract you from it. It doesn't make you not want to eat or get up in the morning hating yourself or looking at your phone. You can leave your phone at home and not worry why wouldn't you be looking for something easy? And actually,
0: you think about the main loves of my life and the big mm. relationships that I work on invest most time mm. with are my friendships. And they're just never a pain in the ass. No. And that's why I treasure them so much, yes. because they make me feel safe. Yeah. There's great intimacy, but there's also adventure. And there's also
1: the other thing, though. I mean, that's the thing. In terms of space for people in your life, the things you get from your friends... Are what most people. Well, it's actually probably more than most people get from their relationships. But that is what they're looking for. Yeah. So,
0: and but it's I, taken me such a long time yes. to realise. I don't think so. I think you're really young.
1: <laughs> I, th- I actually think you've, I think you've actually realised it really great and early on. I Don't like realise it when you're forty six. You know, kids you can't bear. You're like, oh my god, my friends were amazing in my twenties. <laughs>
0: But I think it's taken me... I wish I'd realised sooner yeah. that all the feelings that I have mm. when I'm having dinner with my friends yes. and a glass of wine on a Friday night, those are the things I should be yes. trying to replicate in a yes. relationship. Yeah. But there's also a sexual layer. That's to... yes. that's That's all. That's as simple as, as it is. Yeah. As you say, that's so as easy as it Have you ever had a
1: relationship be. with the boy that you're really good friends with first?
0: No, never. No. Never. Because for me, they've always been such alien creatures who provide mm. an entirely different yeah. service well, actually, to friends. That's what I thought
1: reading your book, The All go school thing, yeah. Again, people talk a lot about cliches of all girls' schools in terms of it being bitchy, but I, I actually thought that the one thing that was amazing is that you formed intimacies with girls in a way I didn't. So I've got I had almost a serial monogamy of best friends, as in I've always had a best friend, and but usually a two-year thing till I upset them so much. And when I get told off, I cut people off. So oh I would do something God. wrong, and I would never speak to them again. So I have got a list in my mind of women i was close to and who i was really bad i might have stolen from them i might have kissed their boyfriend i've just did a thing got told off gone. when did that pattern end or was cariad. it still continuing no, cariad <laughs> i met cariad in my first term at university and i did i fell in love with her the way you fall in love with like people who are the kind of clever you want to be the kind of funny you want to be like she's it was in a rehearsal in a room and then we walked back to she hates me telling this story. I will tell you. you. Tell it. It's romantic. it was romantic for me. It was like it was. A, it's a love story. Uh, we we were in a rehearsal. She was walking about the same way as me, and she said I had a cervical smear this morning, and I'd never heard anyone talk about it openly. Yeah. And like my brain fell out of my ears. Yeah. And I was like, oh my god, I'm so desperately in love. Not in love. I want to be you. Like yeah. that's how I felt. And then she came back to my. Halls and we drank so much tea that I had to, We both we're both lightweights and then we had too much caffeine and like I had to lie down and she left. But it's that thing we talk talk like that and over yeah. each other and, and that that's well and um she's she's so she's so wise and clever and she's the kind of person you stay up all night talking to and you don't have to have a drink. She doesn't mm. drink very much. She doesn't mm. drink, never done drugs. She's stimulating. It's yeah, that and yeah. um but I did a, when I started stand ups it's ten years ago. I did stuff that was really bad to her. I was living in her mum's house. I was starving myself and I was drinking a lot and both her and her mum tried to help and I was really horrible to them because I didn't want to acknowledge it. And I, I did a thing with a boy as well and I did everything that I could. She's like, okay, now you fuck off. To push her away. And I moved out of her house. Her mum was letting me sublet her brother's bedroom and that's the only reason I do comedy is because of how generous she was. Mm. And um, Carrie just didn't let me go. She's like, no, you have to... you it's have the same to... move, I then. know, I'm crying. because yeah. um, She was just like... Because um, cool she knew from her friendships growing up like what friendship is whereas I didn't I didn't have proper intimacy and so her thing was like yes I know you don't like being told off, and I know you're not really talking to me at the moment and I'm actually very angry with you but mm-hmm. I'm not going mm-hmm. so like, that was the thing that taught me and that actually also god I am genuinely crying yeah. um that's that taught me and that's made me much better with men because now I know mm-hmm. I it's not I, have, I don't have intimacy issues it's very raw to be vulnerable with someone and to trust that they're going to be there when you've been a cunt mm. and you've been
0: imperfect and mm. you've stolen from them and that's what intimacy is isn't yeah. it? it's showing yourself for all you are yeah. and having f- trust and faith that that yes. person is going to handle that, it with care and, that's and what's hard. that's
1: what's hard about romantic relationships is it's very hard to say to someone no matter what you do I'm going to continue to find you fascinating because there mm. are some things in a romantic relationship that they can do which mean you don't want to be in a relationship with them anymore and vice versa mm. so you can't make that same kind of promise of I'm always just going to go wow you've done that now mm. and I think that's what's hard about things like monogamy and jealousy and insecurities they're also intertwined it's real when someone breaks your heart or wants someone else or doesn't fancy you and that's the thing you don't have to worry about with your friends they're allowed to have loads of friends yeah yeah and, and the more they the more friends they have the more interesting stories they bring back to you mm. the more like oh my god she's done what like all of that kind mm. of stuff I will never meet anyone as clever as her. I'll never find someone as interesting as her and if there's a choice between talking to her and anyone else in the world. It's a bit about you with, with Farley. It's like mm, your best friend? Yeah. So it's her. So I also know with a boyfriend. He needs to be super sexy, great at cuddling, not minding the fact that I do stand up at nights. He doesn't need to be as clever and interesting as Cariad does. Like, mm. it's fine because I can talk to her about
0: it. Yeah, that's, yeah, that's interesting you said that because my mum and dad who have this incredible marriage, my mum said to me the secret is, is you need three stimulations. You need intellectual, physical and spiritual. Mm. And she said, You're lucky if you get two. Yeah. And when she said that, I'd like romanticised their relationship so much in my head. And then I realised like my dad doesn't read. Yeah. And my mum's a bookworm. Yeah. My mum loves going to exhibitions. And she's been doing that for the last 30 years Mm -hmm. with her sister. And I hadn't it hadn't even clicked that she gets that stimulation from From other other areas of her life. Yeah. And and I think that's where all of us can be
1: kinder to each other as well is that sometimes that thing about being disappointed with someone or wishing they were something else, rather than realising, I get all of this from you, and if I want those other things, I share them with other people. Yeah. Like, if you were with someone who really loved rugby, you don't have to go to rugby <laughs> with him, and you can still love him, but, and vice versa about books and galleries. and yeah. I think it's fine when people don't go in with each other's friends. I think Do that, you? Yeah, I think yeah. that pressure... Because I don't want to spend time with their friends. Like, I don't... Not, I haven't got the backstory... I don't find their jokes funny. <laughs> I don't. I love not having to be polite about it. Mm. I love I love not having to go and spend time with family. You just admit I'm not into
0: it. But I wonder if that's something that happens as you get older because I feel like there is a pressure in those first mm. relationships that you have to entirely entwine all of your yes. lives and families. Yes.
1: Yeah, and that, you think that's what perfection is. There's another thing that I've heard, I, I, I'm sure it was on a podcast and I'm sure it was a relationship guidance person saying that the chances of you and a another person like you're talking about those three things intellectual spiritual and physical the chance of you being in the same kind of zone as someone else with one or two or three of those things is amazing the idea that you would continue on in your life and stay in those mirroring each other what happens is with all of the different strands that go through a human being one of you will be really really stressed out with work while the other one of you's got plenty of time for holiday you're going to have these times of being imbalanced and so you kind of have to relearn each other again and the relationship Mm. and I think that's Mm. the other thing quite often when difficulties are Otherwise we go oh that means it's not the right person rather than wow look what how different our lives are can we create a
0: brand new relationship that is still what we need mm. in this scenario mm. and i think being like there's a bit in your book where you say that you realize that you had a pattern with men where when you felt things weren't entirely perfect yeah you would go Oh, well, that was a nice try. Yes. Well, I have always, I still always feel it
1: about physical attraction. Like For me, I, I don't know how to get past the point. I feel very rejected if, if I'm with someone who doesn't fancy me. Like, and, and that rejection's too much. I must still put too much, or I can't help it, too much weight on. I'm needed, I'm wanted like that. Mm. And then, well, yeah, when it's gone, but I just, I literally run, I don't want a comfortable relationship. Mm. I don't want... Of pajamas and watching TV. By myself? Yes, please. With dogs, hopefully one day, if all my family
0: plants <laughs> come yeah. to fruition. But I I'm not interested in like snuggling. Yeah, it's it's um I have exactly the same I call them baked potato relationships. Yeah. Where it's like two baked potatoes yes, on yes. the sofa with and like that's
1: nice, yeah. with
0: like, you know, when Netflix yeah. goes straight onto the, the next, next episode. Yeah and yeah.
1: sometimes it checks you still playing?
0: Yeah. <laughs>
1: you two dead now <laughs> yeah.
0: Can you tell me your second love story, which is a story of unrequited love? Oh, so unrequited love for me is um, when I was a teenager. And
1: then variously throughout my 20s, but I was very in love with Take That. Anyone in particular? I changed. I changed my alliances, I think... I have delusions of grandeur and I think that's a good thing to have if you want to be a creative person because delusions of grandeur, they get you over the rejections, they tip you over the the bad what ifs because you're in the what if. And um, so I probably, first of all, really liked Mark, but I did have phases of both mostly Robbie, sometimes Gary, never had a Jason or Howard phase. But publicly, this is the thing with Delusions of Grandeur and Saving Face, I would tell people I did like Howard because I thought it was more realistic that we'd end up together. <laughs> I thought that picking the fourth most popular man in the country was yeah. me being like, mm, I'm humble. I'm down to earth, <laughs> yes, guys. Yeah, 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 don't worry. I'm not one of those arrogant people <laughs> who just wants to be with Robbie. <laughs> um, and um, But what I love so much is obviously your body is really changing in terms of what it can feel. And um, I remember, and I didn't know it was sexual, but I had a Walkman that I would listen to as I fell asleep, listening to Take That songs, and I was so sure that they were singing to me about me, and I was just burning. Like, I couldn't go to yeah. sleep. I don't even, like, yeah. genitally burning. I mean, my entire skin mm. was Hot, burning up. Yeah, yeah. And, and it was hot, and to the point that I, I couldn't see if I was suddenly so awake, just so sure, having these delusions, and I, and I, thought, which is intense arousal, basically. It is intense yeah. arousal. And now you'd go, oh my god, I, I, I'd know what it was for the person, but this yeah. is just a, there's this huge gap. And I love the theory, the idea that you try, you have this projection, you, the first. Some for lots of people your first sexual feelings are for someone you who will never be able to take advantage of those feelings. You know yeah, that like, little yeah. practice one where you go, a poster can't ruin it with his real hand totally. in an inappropriate place. And it's
0: so safe and wonderful because yeah. you can write their version mm. of you, which is adoring. Yes, and just yeah, being right. And um
1: and I do the other thing though, and I do understand this is why I think it's problematic that the power dynamic. I know, or oh, I was so sure that I knew, that if I had met them or gone backstage or anything, I'd have let them do anything they wanted to to me. And I would think about the things. Would I let them wee on me? Yes. Would I let them poo on me? Yes. Would I let them put the stuff up my bum? Yes. Like, it was so...
0: So how old were you at that point? 14. Probably 14. <laughs> just like, shit on me? Of course. All of all five of you go. Like, but that's why I'm so obsessed with fandom and with yes, groupie. And I'm yeah. so obsessed with the fact that at Rolling Stones gigs, apparently mm. these young girls... Mm. Afterwards, it would the concert yes, rooms would yeah. be flooded with yeah. urine yeah. Yeah. because these girls would, wet themselves, would wet themselves at the sight of these yeah. men because it was awaking something in yeah. them that maybe they didn't quite have a specific language for, yeah. but it was kind of primal. Yes, yeah, it's really, really, really primal, and, and it's
1: before it's politicized yes. as well. Yeah, and again, what we're talking about in terms of female sexuality, that was made to look like a kind of madness or something else, rather than like, look at these hot young women. Like, mm. I mean, I mean, hot, I mean in that kind of on heat way. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like, look how wrong everything that's ever been written about women and their, the way they express sexual excitement and love has always been. Exactly. So I would create narratives about take that. And one, I think I put it in my book, but I used to have this fantasy that they, their limo would break down in Romford and that I would find them and they, it would be fixed and I'd make them beans on toast. I had this obsession that I was, like, down to earth and <laughs> that's the thing that would really attract them to me, that they would be like... I always had this like image of them, like, eating beans on toast, being like, oh, my God... <laughs> I have our beans on tour for ages.
0: And they're like, I've finally, I've toured yes. the world and i finally found yeah. a girl who understands yeah. and me. And also
1: who isn't reacting like a fan because yeah. I would be pretending. Even though I she didn't...
0: said you can poo on me. Yeah, no,
1: at that point I haven't said anything because they've broken down at my house. and so then I'm just like, do you need any help, gentlemen? <laughs> I live nearby. <laughs> no, don't worry, come in. And um, yeah, I used to lie at school. Like I, 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 th- I remember one of my lies really clearly because I told Hayley Mays... That I had a hot tub in my house. I had a we had a two bedroom house in Romford terrace house, a hot tub, and that I'd got off with Mark Owen. (laughs) 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 This like pathetic little virgin in her tiny house. (laughs) Sherry met Cheryl.
0: (laughs) But how did you tell her that you had got him to the house? Did you use the breakdown story? uh,
1: No, I told her Mariah Carey was my singing teacher, (laughs) and it was. (laughs) And so we met. This is bringing back so
0: many memories I used to like all the time but again
1: I I know my job now stand up which is exaggeration and sometimes making things up because it would be great if that had happened the reason I love my job right you literally create yourself as a character it's like myth you mythologise yourself you take things that are actually quite shitty and you make them better Mm. you make endings you you did say that to that shopkeeper you did say that to that guy you have done this thing like it's you get, you get this control and I realised at school that's what I was trying to do the part of my brain that makes up stories now mm. was just doing it then mm. and some things I felt like I felt she was my singing teacher <laughs> I felt that's how good I was that's how if she knew of course she would come around and yeah sometimes she had to babysit me that's the thing so that's why I had to met her, through Mark Owen
0: did you find, because I was the same, I was, like, obsessed with the adultness mm. of romance and mm. sexuality. When you finally got to a point where, when you've been, like, fantasising mm. about all the things you would let take that do to mm. you and you've been filling out these forms and you've been talking about what seminal yeah. fluid tastes yeah. like, when you finally got to that point yeah. where you were allowed to fuck, yeah. did you feel, was it as exciting as you thought it would be?
1: Yeah, not in a sexual, actually, but it was so weird. My obsession with sex at the beginning was how many times I could do it in a day. <laughs> so my first boyfriend, we got to seven. Boyfriend afterwards was, like, beating the seven. Also, the other thing, I, um, I used to kiss a lot of boys in one night. Once I started mm. in Hollywood's in Romford I kissed 36 people one night. You can just walk round and i just go up to guys and pull them. And so would my sister Cheryl and so would my friend Siobhan. So would my friend Hailey. That's just what we did. <laughs> yeah. And then we just count in. And I don't know the, and obviously none of those were nice kisses and none of those were no. didn't matter what they looked like. It was nothing about that. I think it was the power it must have been the power or just that I'm not disgusting. Or I'd, is I had it
0: collecting anecdotes? Collecting
1: anecdotes p- p- pushing out boundaries being alive but they, but it wasn't the genuine the actual genuine pleasure of that was a nice moment in my life mm. it wasn't existing in a moment going this is pleasure i honestly think a part of it was i felt had felt so disgusting through school the fact that i could now walk up to someone i'd had my braces off walk up to someone and kiss them in hollywoods and he, what and then part of me knew they also they also don't care who they're kissing <laughs> But I, it, part of it with me was proving that for ages.
0: And I think yeah. as well that if you have felt sexually rejected mm. by boys growing up yes. as a teenager, yeah. I think that it galvanises you and charges you yes. it, with the wrong yes. energy. Well, actually,
1: that's very true. I don't know how you, you found it, but I found a lot of my friend, male friends who were dweebs at school who are now comics and attractive, they are the shaggers. They're the real problematic ones because they never, no one ever wanted to talk to them. And now they can't say no like it's and they they're the they're the real scoundrels the the ones you wouldn't expect to be
0: I would like you to tell me a story of passionate love so passionate love i think i found
1: when you asked this on the email like the word passion for me always, it feels like a stage in a story yeah. rather than the story itself i don't think i've ever had with a person like i feel like that's where things like the way i love animals that's passionate but not sexual <laughs> but like as in like I don't think I'll ever walk past a dog and not want to be his best friend like yes, yes. that will never I, be my, moderate I guess that's enthusiasm yeah. isn't yeah. it's that kind of passion um but so in terms of passion and relationships I think sometimes they are always the saddest stories because in a yeah. way they have to end abruptly when I was a child there was a, an, a movie on Sky that I watched when I was off school and um I was watching it for my babysitter and I've never forgotten it because it's the saddest thing I ever saw.
0: You write about yes. it in the book, do not yeah. you so Yeah, so
1: basically there's this man and this woman, and then they were kissing, and it was all really exciting, but they were really poor, and he said I was gonna go to, I'm gonna go to the diamond mine and I'm gonna I'm gonna get us money so that we can be a family, we can marry each other, we can have this life. And then um so he goes off to this diamond mine and then every day she's like waiting out on the road for him to come back. And then she realizes she's pregnant Like her tummy's getting bigger and she's waiting for him to come back and and everyone's saying, you stupid girl, you had sex with him, you're not even married to him, you stupid girl, of course he's left, you gave him the one thing that you've got, now you can't marry anyone, she only wants to marry him and she keeps saying, he'll come back for me. And they're like, stupid to believe that, that's not what men do, they don't come back. And then she's like, he's going to wait for me. And then she has the baby and then she's got this little girl and the little girl is growing up and, and this woman's like a pariah, she's got nothing, she's so poor. And then even as she's telling her daughter about her, father it becomes he's, he's not coming back he was supposed to come back for us and the mum kind of gets a bit bitter and a bit angry and her whole life was a lie and she was stupid and she never meets anyone else and she has no life and then she dies and then the daughter is kind of having to deal with like she's an orphan and she's poor and she's born out of wedlock and doesn't have a father and then He's like people come running down the road. So she's probably about twenty-five. And people come running down the road, and there's been this big thing at the diamond mine, and they've found this skeleton of this man, and like this is his like letter and his bag that he wrote to all your mum, and he loved her all along, and he died trying to get her a diamond. Mm. Like imagine, you create the narrative where oh he didn't love me, I was stupid, I was wrong, and there can sometimes be so much love both ways. But you just don't understand each other, or Mm. unhappiness has crept in, or.
0: But what effect do you think that had on you watching that film at such a young age? Because I really do think watching those, of course they do, yes, have a huge effect. Because we are
1: we are building what the world
0: is. Yeah, and
1: I guess, what so what did it think of me? I think probably that's not a bad thing. I think trusting they would want to come back if something hadn't happened. I think a world where you can tell it. This is why I understand religion. You can tell yourself a version of events which is less hurtful. They've died in a diamond mine, okay? You're not not beautiful. You're not not wonderful. They're not not charmed by you. They're dead, okay?
0: That's why he's not texting. What's so difficult now is that it would be so easy for me. Like, there was this one guy that I was seeing in my mid-20s, and we had been seeing each other for a few months, and he said to me one day, um, he had this dog, and he was like, would you watch the dog for a couple of days? And then in a couple of days, I'll come pick you up, and we'll, like, go out for dinner. Yes, yeah the dog never came, and there was no text, there was Mm. nothing, it would be much easier for me Mm. to be able to tell myself that he died Mm. in a mine. Yes. But sadly, because of Instagram. Yeah, because of Instagram now, yeah. I know that that ain't true. Yeah. Which is why ghosting is so cruel and hurts so much. But
1: also I think it's why we should, all of us, have a deal. There should be another app which is for politely saying, I'm not going to ring you again. Yeah, And also allowing, I think the reason that people don't get in contact is they don't like people to be angry with us. People are allowed their angry bit because that's about them hurting, not about you being a bad person, even if the way they express it at that point. It's like people are allowed to be angry with you and, you're, and it doesn't change you being a good or a bad person. It's mm. so cowardly to hide. What we're hiding from is don't make me feel like I'm worse than I am.
0: Mm.
1: I do understand why people don't do it. I think in terms of empathising, that moment and its pain still exists. And still exists on, either of the, on both of the sides. But you know about like mirror neurons in the brain, sometimes we do feel things that happen to other people. Mm. And also, you're still sorry that you had to do that. Mm. Like That's what sorry means. When you say, I'm sorry for you, what you mean is, I'm sorry that it happened. Mm. I'm sorry I had to do it. That Ordon line you quote in your book is so beautiful mm. about rather being the one who loved too much. Mm. In a way... They've accepted you didn't love them, but you still think that's a sign of you failing. Mm. So you wanted to go, oh, it's absolutely fine not to love people. Mm. It's yeah.
0: absolutely fine. Yeah. yeah. How have you found, with, have you done mostly dumping or being dumped? Um, to use crass and horrible so, language. So I, I've
1: mostly done dumping. Um, even my very first relationship, even though he was with someone else, I kind of technically ended it, I cling to another person that well, I started to stand up because I loved someone who didn't love me. And I also ended that relationship. But in that way, where you're really trying to push them to say, I desperately want you yeah and he definitely didn't want me so he so it's I think emotionally I felt very rejected but technically I am so quick to look for signs of them not liking me so that's the kind of bad girlfriend I am because my paranoia comes up of like you've stopped having feelings haven't you you're doing this haven't you you, you need to you, am I annoying you am I annoying you should I go away do you need space for me I'm not good I'm just not gonna answer the phone for two days because I felt like I was annoying you like I'm that kind of I'm trying to preempt it at every
0: stage because well, I don't feel said, safe. The great yeah. metaphor that you said in your book is it's like you you've gone into Alton Towers and you're standing by the exit. Oh all yes, day. yeah, that's it. You're just waiting for the sh- mm. the shit to hit. Yeah, the fan. very, very sure things end. Yeah. And, and
1: so I don't even allow. There are lovely moments in relationships, sometimes even very short ones, where you know it's not right. Where you fantasize about the dog that you'd get, or would we live near your parents or my parents, and all those kind of things. And I just don't allow them. Really? Yeah. No, I'll get my own dog. (laughs) I'll
0: get my own dog and I'll have my own house. You can can email me. (laughs) (laughs) There was a line that I wrote down that I found so um, moving, and I think it's because it really resonated with me, where you're talking about your ex-boyfriend and you said... We went on dates where I would slam down cocktails and say, I don't believe in marriage, let's just have fun. And then I would weep because I don't believe in marriage and I don't believe in anything. And I was asking for reassurance that I couldn't define. Yeah, yeah, that's that's fun, isn't it? I've had so many of those dates. Yeah. And what is yeah. that? What it's. It's a test. Is it a test? I think it's a test
1: because it's not a question. What you're doing is like, this is what I'm auditioning you for, make me believe in something yeah. or make me believe that I can be so present with you, the next thing doesn't matter. I'm actually really looking forward to an age. I, my thing at the moment is about having a family or not. And um, and I know that I could I can buy my own house and I could register for adoption. So I have that, that is there and it's not age defined. Yeah. But I have this desperation. Someone just tell me if I'm going to have kids or not. And then I know I can just react. I can just go, oh, great, it's going to happen, I'm going to be really old. Or, mm-hmm. no, it's not. Just get over it. Stop thinking in every relationship or every potential or even thinking once every three days, I'll just buy some sperm. Yes or no? Yes or no? just want an answer. Then I can make my other plans.
0: Now, I was talking to my friend the other day about this and she's divorced and she's in her 50s and mm. from her marriage mm. she has three beautiful grown-up children mm. and she's now dating again this guy mm. in her 50s for the first time and she said it's just a whole fucking different thing yeah. because this thing has lifted yeah. that she wasn't even aware of that was there yeah. after even every one night stand yes. this unconscious mm. voice in her head lying with this bloke mm. next to her being like am oh I going to have kids is this going to be the one yes. that gives me kids do I want kids yeah. what, what am I you know and also if you do really really want kids what? how shit a man am I willing to put up with to
1: get some Yeah. which is the thing yeah or how that is a thing, and you really see
0: it when you yeah. as and, I'm and exiting also, my twenties. And, and this is why
1: biology is important, and it's not important in terms of defining womanhood. As in, it doesn't it doesn't mean you have to have a biological female body to be a woman. But in terms of people who identify as male in male bodies and identify as female in female bodies, there is a difference of a gender. They will never understand the time constraints we didn't choose, we don't want, and would rather live without. They can't empathize with how it would feel to have a body mm. that at some point a choice is taken away from you. You don't have the luxury of going, I think I'll know when I know. You do have to start going, what am I willing to compromise? And will I be happy without it? Because it's a question. I think you know I won't be happy without children. What you mean is there's a chance it might be too late. And then I go, oh, fuck, I should have compromised. I had a thing where I was very unsympathetic towards myself when I, because I've always thought I didn't want to have children. And then maybe in my early 30s, my sister's had children. And I started to think a lot more about it, and I was like, "Oh God, don't be that kind of woman." Yeah. Oh my God, I'm the kind of woman who now says I'm in my thirties, and it was Carrie saying, "Why are you being so hard?" Like, I was like, "Because I was supposed to be the one of the ones who didn't care, who didn't give a shit, who was mm. just my job is so fulfilling." Mm, mm. And it's like, yeah, now you just have to be the kind of one I'm like, "Is my job's really fulfilling?" And yet you then wonder, am I not not getting a proper life experience? If I don't make packed lunches, what am I going to do? <laughs> But I'm worried I'll be really bored. I'm worried that the experiences that life can give you and that I'm so lucky because of my job, I've had so many things I never thought I'd get to experience before now. I think there comes a point where you just go around again. Yeah. I feel like, so say that you're Jermaine Greer, and just, just, just talking about career, nothing else, but you write these incredible books, you sell millions of them, you tour the world doing book events, you speak in all the biggest halls, and then the, you do it again. Like, you, yeah. you have that experience. Yeah. And then you can do that alongside having a family or do it a different way, a shorter tour because you've... So they call it the generativity stage, and it's not necessarily about breeding, but it is about thinking about people who aren't you and, in particular, the next generation. So when I panic, that's what I always think about. It's like there are so many people who have to concentrate on their families. They can't worry about what their local school is doing unless it's their school, Mm -hmm. or they can't be involved. So I thought there's this other way of being
0: part of a community. But I definitely think that's more interesting. But then my head goes Mm. to you because I've had those thoughts as well of like am I really going to be 45 and still on a Friday recording a podcast and then having dinner in Soho is that going to be you know but then another part of it's like but is that enough of a reason (laughs) no of course course it's not of course it's not I guess it's
1: you trying to worry about this future person you know like the, the, the past self and the future self like it's so sometimes they feel so disconnected You know, like people get in debt, and that is literally punishing you in the future. Like, I'm going to buy this thing. Yeah, you're going to be able to. You're going to be eating copper soup for two weeks when your credit card bill comes through. And I, and I think that's the same thing. It's like, I'm trying to be... I'm concerned about my future self. I'm not telling her her life's shit. If it doesn't feel shit now, why would it feel shit then? Yes, but, but it's but, insurance. But I, I don't want her to look back and go, hey, mate. Yeah, yeah. Hey, look, you had everything and you could have tried a little bit harder and this could have happened for you. And also, I, I wonder if something happens. Is Yeah, is this a wondering? I think it's so fantastic. I also think it's very sad when people then have a regret and go, oh, I'm an animal and part of me would really have liked to look at a thing I made. mm but the other thing that actually really concerns me is how difficult it is and then then I panic that actually it's much better not to go through it because I just think people who have to deal with the miscarriages and the IVF mm. and all of those things mm. oh I'm not strong enough for that mm. what I want is an accidental pregnancy and beef it, and I want to be like one of those girls you read out in a magazine who finds out she's eight and a half months pregnant on the toilet and I go but I'm still having my periods I only put on two pounds yeah. and then I just have it and it's perfect I'm like phew <laughs> and you haven't had to make any
0: decisions nothing, nothing. Sonia from EastEnders yeah, that's is what I you want, want to I be I want basically.
1: a Sonya story line so that I haven't done anything it's like I I didn't get it screened for diseases I didn't have anything I didn't get a single stretch mark I I, I want that one
0: (laughs) (laughs) on to your fourth and final love story can you tell me a story of everlasting love well obviously everlasting
1: I'm not dead yet but like up until this point from the second I first did it I've been in love with stand-up comedy and I didn't, before I did stand-up comedy, I never wanted to be a comedian, so it's not something where I ever looked at it, I knew it existed, I thought it was stupid. When I did it, and it's about autonomy and being in control, and it's also about all of the stuff in your life feeding into it, that, that there isn't a life job line with stand-up comedy. Everything that you learn and think and experience be- is then becomes your work, and your work fits into your life. And also, all of my friends are comedians. Everyone is people I've met through comedy. Carrie a comedian as well. The reason it's my enduring love is... So stand-up, it's really good for an overachiever because you can't win at it. It's a bit like a masochistic relationship. That's interesting. Apart from it also does, after a certain point, pay you. And it's as creative as you want it to be. You can improvise every set you do on stage. You can make props. You can come in today and go, I'm a baby wolf. (laughs) So I'm a a baby wolf. Who wants to see my tail? You can do whatever you want on stage and you don't get fired. And some of that stuff works and some of that stuff doesn't. And... Like the ongoing thing it is it, as a job it's exactly what you want it to be because you make it if you want to go to Manchester and Blackpool and do gigs up north then you do and if you want to go if you want to gig in Sweden all the time because you love
0: that you can like everything's possible and you're right about that if you're someone who gets off on the struggle and the process everyone I've met through comedy is an overachiever
1: in that they could all have done another job they all say I'm one of life's losers because that's the point of stand up is the audience is better than me really I've Fucked up, but all of them you go, you'd have been an amazing doctor, yeah, you could do astronomy. You're, you're one of the people whose brains just gets patterns, like they've all got
0: such incredible abilities, and they've all chosen a thing you can't win. Because even when you're at your peak, yeah, you still can go out and have the worst gig of your
1: the life. The most famous, most successful comics will write disappointing shows, will yeah. deliver it, will stumble on a joke will have nights where it just doesn't, there's so much like alchemy that goes on in terms of the relationship between the audience and the comic. And also, and I think it's a very human thing, it's not just comedians, but you think that the very best it's ever gone is your norm. Yeah. <laughs> and every other audience is not quite there. Yes. So there's a, basically, you'll only be happy in one in a hundred gigs. When I say happy, I mean not whinging. You'll still probably have a physiological disappointment half an hour later when you crash because you've had a huge experience that you're not supposed to have. Hundreds of people aren't supposed to look at you. Mm. That's not how we evolved. That's mm. so but all of that for all of that and the nerves even, even Do you still get those nerves? Yes. But because it matters, that's what I've told myself. It's so amazing. Imagine going to, like, i will be doing new materials before going on to 30 people, and I'll be looking at my pad going, why did you do this to yourself? Why did you do this? You could just go on to the cinema. Oh, it still matters to you. It still matters if that line works. It matters if you followed that person and they've said something about that already and said, should you not or should you say it off the back of them? And they go, oh, imagine caring that much every day before you go into work about how it's going to be and then on the way home going and how was it and how was that bit and I realised that that is a love story. Yeah it is. Yeah and also on days that I don't have gigs I do love staying in especially when it's so cold at the moment which is I still get a thing about 6pm where I'm a bit itchy like I want to look at my pad and and I would rather leave the house and do 10 minutes and come home than just stay in.
0: And did you find it because also I suppose that in one way you can look at it as it's lonely but there's a great camaraderie. Yeah. There's a great I think you know, I, green room culture. Yes, I think there really is. I th- again I think it might be different because there were so
1: many more men than women. When I started, I found such it's the, the women are so supportive because they are the only people who understand what your job is like. Yes. And, so, and the men have more competition between them because it's more competitive. What I have I noticed straight away was that women I'd never gigged with knew my name because they had heard it already from someone or they'd seen it listed. So their first thing was, hello, I'm this person. They knew they were more successful than me. They knew that I knew who they were. And their first thing was... It was so clearly holding the door open.
0: That's it was, fucking amazing. It's really
1: great. And it's that thing about adversity. And in terms of comedy, it's a very small thing, as in, in terms of the world and the adversity that people, including women, have to face. But it does bond you as a subculture. Yeah. If there's less of you, you do know... For instance, if I hated another woman's comedy, I would never say it. As in, I would never say it out loud to another person. What you always do is have each other's back. So yes. we are within us as a subculture, obviously incredibly diverse, there's lots of styles of comedy. Pretty much with one or two outliers, we have each other's back. Yeah. There was an American comic who said something last year about very den- denigrating publicly about other female comedians. And the reason everyone was so shocked is like, we kind of have this rule yeah. that we don't do that to each other because yeah. the world is doing that yeah, already. So let's us just
0: go. Yeah. I think she's
1: amazing. There's, you should book her. Yeah, yeah, there's this
0: bit in your book when you said that often the compare would go out and warn yeah. the audience. They would say, yeah. and the next person mm. we have coming up, she's a woman. Yeah, and that he would warn the audience yeah. before And sometimes, came even
1: if it wasn't that, he would say, afraid of, the next comedian is a woman. He's trying to be positive about it. Let's say, <laughs> hey, hey, no, it's all right. Don't worry, but you've heard it. You're not going to fall off your chairs. It's OK. My voice is like this. It's probably going to be fine. And I'll go with it before.
0: She's here. There she is. But, do they still do that to you now, or do they not dare?
1: I don't think so. I can't remember the last time I've had like a bad... You, of course, you do still get... But little things and not so much. And I think, I think there's been so much conversation about it. Like, the phrase is, very. most people are very woke. As in, like, there's been a generational shift Yes. in lots of things. I wonder, maybe everyone feels this about the time that they're alive. I'm really fascinated about how this period will be looked back on. Mm. There are some huge conversations happening.
0: Mm. I'm so mm. aware I don't want to make you speak on behalf of oh, all women, because that must yeah. just be the most boring thing. But you personally, have you felt, these conversations mm. that you talk about and the and the way things are shifting, mm. in the... Eight years? Is yeah. it eight years you've been doing comedy?
1: Nearly ten. ten oh, it's ten now, it's nearly eleven. I, I so the worry I have, and I always say this, is I when something has worked for you, you think the system is good. So mm. if I if I was to say comedy is so much better and it's better for women now, yeah. that's wrong. Yeah. I'm successful now. Yes. I have money now. I have some in this country, have been on stuff the way i'm people treated People treat is you differently people, exactly. people yeah. the importance of holding the door open for other women and to not speak on their behalf and say it's all right now is the thing so for me i'm a working class person who was bankrupt when i started stand up comedy i have found it to be a meritocracy mm. cuz i think i'm good and i got good stuff so of course i would go it's so fair it's amazing like and there's other people who don't earn money oh they're probably rubbish like mm. OK, so that's not true. Yeah. There's very, very few spaces for women on TV, especially, well, in comedy as everywhere else. And once women ha- are in those spaces... I mean, I'm 36. I don't want to retire until I'm dead. So... If there's one woman on a panel show and there's seven of us and they do six episodes a series, they're never getting new women. They're doing much better at increasing diversity. But what they're not doing is going, sorry, Sarah, you've been on QI twice. We're so excited about having Fern Brady, Ellie Taylor, Rachel Paris. Like, they should have a list of ten people going. And also then, that's where you know, and it's the same for the boys. Because sometimes the difference is when the new men come up, they slip in quite easily. They're not as visible. Yes. So everyone's shy at the beginning. Everyone's a bit shit. It's, an, it's a very brand new face. But sitting on a panel show when someone who's been going for 20 years longer than you is talking over you, you just, you can give up. You'd yeah. be a bit nervous, and yeah. or, or you can say some stuff that's not that funny, and then you want to die. You go, why why do should, I shouldn't talk out loud? You you say a joke that you wrote, and you thought it was funny, and the dressing him, and then it's nothing, and all that stuff, and then you get over it when you come back. Just mm. like because it's like a dinner party, you say lots of stuff, you throw it, some of it goes <laughs> in the edit. Who cares? Yeah, <laughs> but you only get that from experience, yeah. And unfortunately, that's the, the trouble with lots of conversations. Is some people will go out. Catherine Ryan, her first panel show, which was eight out of ten cats, she smashed it so hard. She got two years of material into it. She just she's her focus and her mind, but not everyone's like that. There are other people who are equally brilliant, Sir Catherine, mm. who would have sat there and said nothing. Mm. And it doesn't mean that they're not ready and they're not right. I think there should be workshops beforehand, that's what I think, not auditions. To encourage the diversity yeah, on TV. A good idea. I think there should be situations where they go, we're just gonna do two weeks of run throughs. Of course we're making notes of you, but we're gonna bring you all back three times, different topics, different situations. It's for us to get used to what you need to be funny not us going we know you're funny that's why you're here yeah, we're not auditioning yeah. for you we're going Like uh, uh, there's comics that I've worked with like, um, who are quite quiet Tom Davis is one of them so he does Murder and Successville and did a panel show with him oh and Joe Wilkinson is the same they don't compete they're really quiet if you ask them a question it would be the funniest thing you've ever heard mm. and so you get used to it and then and on the show people then know oh Tom's not spoken for a while did you ever go yeah. to like Butlins or anything and then he tells you a story you're like how are we talking about Butlins you weren't telling us the story that <laughs> yeah. you like went and ran away to live there when you wanted to be a boxer <laughs> like it's it's like that yeah and, and you learn that from other comics you go oh you need this i can feel it. oh don't throw that at that person because they'll suddenly go what's the yeah, right answer because it? the panel show should be an ensemble really yes it should be you're all throwing balls up in the air and the joy is you throw it up everyone tries to touch it yeah. who's got it who's got it yeah. not watch it fall because it wasn't very good mm. it's always a door but anyway that's what i think because i'm an ensemble player because you're an actor
0: at heart as I well. I think so, That's exactly. And, you,
1: and also, but also, it's being an empath. You want everyone to have a nice show.
0: Yeah. yeah. I've
1: never, ever wanted to be the funniest. My instinct there isn't to go, I won that one.
0: Mm. It's it, You're always looking, are we all having a nice time? Mm. Kind of thing. It's so much more than we're putting this person on a panel. It's creating a culture where they they feel, like, accepted and safe and, like, they can excel and that this isn't their one test. That's it. If they
1: can flourish on stage by themselves, which is the hardest, it's just working out how to translate that so they can flourish... Around other people, yeah, yeah, and just sometimes it's an adjustment. And actually, in terms of privilege, those of us who have who are very cocky in our hearts or have an inner built confidence, whether it's it's earned or not, basically those of us who in our heads have this little inner monologue like "I'm the king, everyone mm. should listen," we do much better on panel shows mm. because it's just this arrogant part of you going, "No, I think everyone should listen to me." The part that got you to stand up in the first place, but not everyone does, and that's just like. It's something I hope improves. Mm.
0: And comedy is your everlasting love. Do you see a a world in which you're doing this age seventy-five? I hope so.
1: I I hope so. I've never had a problem writing stand-up. Like I've never had to sit down and write it. Write it on the way. Have it have it in my pad. You just have ideas. And so while I feel like that, I can't see it stopping. And I think it would be the saddest thing if you looked at the world and was like, oh, there's nothing to say.
0: Sarah Pascoe, I think I'm a bit in love with you.
1: Ah, me too, thank you. for
0: sharing your love stories with me. Thank you for having me. Thank you for listening to Love Stories. You can rate, review and subscribe on iTunes to give the series a boost and help others find it. And you can buy my book, Everything I Know About Love, published by Fig Tree, in Waterstones, on Amazon or in all good bookshops. Or buy the audiobook on Audible. Love Stories is recorded in the Penguin Studio in London. The music was composed and recorded by Lauren Benstead. Tune in next week when another guest will be telling me their love stories.